Hi, everyone. This is Christy. Today's episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by Mini Money Management. Mini Money Management is an educational app designed for K-8 teachers that combines classroom management with financial literacy. If you don't currently have a classroom economy, the app will guide you to quickly and easily create one. And if you already have a classroom economy, you can now digitize, monitor, and manage it in five minutes a day. Mini Money Management integrates seamlessly with existing classroom structures, and it meets national and state-level financial literacy standards. It teaches students that money is a limited resource that must be prioritized, while also giving teachers more control over the classroom. Teachers reported a 30% increase in financial literacy test scores without any direct instruction, and students reported feeling more confident in their post-high school financial plans after using Mini Money Management. Mini Money Management is currently offering a free year-long pilot opportunity to K-8 teachers. You'll want to take advantage of that, and you can find them and request their free pilot at edcuration.com. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. It's a little bit of social work, a little bit of science, and a little bit of passion. The most valuable resource is also their time. It just can't be wasted on fluff. But we have to be able to continuously poll our students and just give them voice. We have to pick texts that are totally going to push their thinking. Like our sponsor, Mini Money Management, our guest today, Dr. Kenneth Waters, has worked to advance the financial literacy and job readiness of students and youth. He's a career educator who has filled many roles, his current one being the cultural diversity, equity, and inclusion leader at St. Andrew's Episcopal School in Baltimore, Maryland. He is particularly concerned with changing the narrative around and outcomes for male students of color. Many of us share that concern, so we welcome the opportunity to hear from Dr. Waters. Thank you for coming to the podcast today. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Dr. Waters, tell everybody a little bit about your history as an educator. So the word I thoroughly enjoy that you use is an educator. I always ask my faculty whether or not they're an educator or a teacher. And I believe there's a distinct difference between one who's an educator and one who's a teacher. Basically, a teacher is an individual that's basically focused on content, in my opinion, whereas an educator is focused on how are we advancing our learners beyond the classroom. So to answer your question specifically, I believe I've always been an educator, even from the moments when I was in Sunday school, even from the moments when I was in college and as a former reporter. I'm a career changer. I started off as a youth leadership coordinator where I created curriculum helping students who were trying to improve their, obviously, financial capital and created a curriculum to help them become work ready. I was working in one of the, quote unquote, worst public schools in the state of Pennsylvania. And according to graduation rates and according to behavior rates and according to all of the metrics that individuals identify as ranking a school. And my job there was specifically to focus on trying to improve their college going culture. The beauty is that Since it was considered one of the worst schools in the state, all I could do was go up. 
So it sounds like you are a little ahead of the curve because really it's just been the last couple of years that the majority of schools, districts, and states across the country have started putting a huge emphasis on career and technical education and training, but it sounds like you are really at the front of that wave. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm fortunate is that I consider myself more of a hybrid professional considering that I have a background in journalism. I'm a former reporter. I've done community relations. I've done training, et cetera. And now me being in my position now in the diversity, equity, and inclusion world, I help faculty, students recognize what situations or things are best suited for students as opposed to just pushing them straight through college. But I always push for a whole post-secondary training. It's not necessarily always a four-year college. It can be some type of trade. So all I to say is, yes, I'm fortunate that I had that experience, but it could, because it gives me that, that, that groundwork, it gives me that foundational understanding that every is not a one-size-fits-all for each student. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So I'm sure that all of that experience and those skills really feed into whatever you're doing because mm-hmm. a good journalist just really knows how to communicate analysts and well. <laughs> so Ed Curation recently hosted a nationwide conference that you participated in, and the conference was focused on committing to anti-racist curriculum and instruction. Mm-hmm. And in that conference, your session focused specifically on educating Black boys in today's mm-hmm. social climate. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit why you chose that very specific topic and focus for for your session. So I guess to add my ethos at this particular time, I know you all can't see me, but I was a former black boy and now I'm a, a black man. I am from urban America, originally from Philly, Philadelphia area. I had to think about what were some of the things or factors that contributed to me being able to succeed considering the negativity and considering the things that I observe and seen in my community that wasn't necessarily positive. So if I wanted to help this cadre of individuals, this subgroup of learners, I felt like it was my job to, to come up with research, to come up with policy, come up with strategies to improve their outcomes. So it was personal to me, for one, and me focused specifically on Black Black males, considering the numbers, I throw a statistic out there. 2012 was the first time that Black males graduated high school on time at more than 50%. Traditionally, they graduated at a 40 to 45% range. So in 2012, I'm going to say that again. The first time that more than 50% of Black males graduated with a cohort at more than 50%, which I believe was 52%. And so that's alarming. And, and that's problematic. And then the, the results that I've seen, is just, I've seen also talked about that two out of 12 Black males between the ages of 14 to 22 will amount to something. And the other individuals will either be incarcerated, be killed, be dead, serving time, and all the negative things that attach to, to society, they will be part of that particular statistics. And then I thought about my community and my community, if I look at it, out of the 20 guys that I grew up with, only two of us made it out. So I am a living statistic. So I wonder that 2012 statistic, so that's eight years ago now, has that trajectory continued upward or has it held steady? Has it gone back down? What's happening? It's kind of plateaued. It's back to essentially around that well, 48 to 52 percent. But again, it's still problematic. So you're saying one out of... Yeah, it's ridiculous. Like yeah. eight years we've named no progress, right? Yeah, 
Exactly. And if you want to even go all the way further back, just 30s to 20s, the 20s to 30s, 40s, all the way up until now. And what's what's even more alarming, their peers are anywhere between 68 to 74 percent. Yeah. So that was my next question. How does that compare to other racial ethnic groups and Mm -hmm. gender? Yeah. So that's where they at. So the females, if I remember correctly, were in that 68 percent. White males were in that 74 to 78 percent. There was a time prior to the No Child Left Behind legislation that graduation rates were closer to 70% for white males and 42% for black males. As Dr. Waters just explained, both rates have increased significantly, but there's debate about whether this increase reflects true learning and academic advancement or just gaming of our own system for the sake of numbers, a side effect of the No Child Left Behind and the era of raising test scores at all costs. But the real concern is that the gap for black males has remained constant and immovable. It's just as wide as it's ever been. This is not equity. We can't keep talking about equity and not fix this, but it's one outcome of a much bigger problem. This finding would indicate that something different is happening for males of color than females of color, even though obviously they're growing up in the same neighborhoods, the same families, you know, the same circumstances. You mentioned in your session that there's a narrative around Black males that they have low academic success and high disciplinary needs. And I was curious about your use of the word narrative mm-hmm. because, <laughs> and I don't know if there's an answer to this, but yeah, yeah. my question is, do the statistics actually support that narrative or is it the narrative that is creating those statistics? It depends on how you want to look at it. I mean, the beauty of statistics, the beauty of data is that you can almost make data say whatever you want it to say. Yeah. And it depends on how you want to examine. So considering that I examined this particular phenomenon, I'm going to say that it's a little bit of both reason I say that is because you have a population such as a black male that's going into a system that's not necessarily designed for me, I'm specific, make it personal, for me to succeed. And what I mean by that, because we are considered in some aspects an anomaly, and we could take traces all the way back to slavery, we could take this back to prior to the civil rights movement, prior to Brown versus Board of Education, a black male was considered someone different than the normal. So you're putting a black boy in a system that is not traditionally designed for him. And only is it not designed for him, you have educators or teachers who are in these systems that do not look like him, that do not look like me. So trying to connect and trying to help the black boy succeed, there is a huge discrepancy for the simple fact that I already have a bias against him based on what the media is telling me. Once I encounter him, I've already built this wall and built these barriers. And as a black mm-hmm. male, we recognize these things pretty immediately. And the yeah. reason I talk about all the narrative is that from a child, we are trained and we are taught and we are, it's in our thinking and our thought process that we are threats. So if I look yeah. at my position now, I am, I didn't mention this, but I'm in a predominantly white private school. I've been in urban ed. I've been in charter schools. 
And I am in a school in a D.C. area that's pretty well known. I'm going to save you all the trouble of stopping the podcast right now in order to Google why St. Andrew's Episcopal School is pretty well known. At the time of this interview, the then first son, Baron Trump, attended St. Andrew's Episcopal School. His mother, Melania, said they chose St. Andrew's in part for its diverse community and commitment to academic excellence. The student body is quite diverse. However, when it comes to faculty, it's not diverse. So the joke was, and it's amongst my colleagues and I, and I, and I give my school credit because now they're working and they're trying to improve the diversity. Whereas for the first few years there, I used to say I was the only one on this campus that did not need an ID. I was the only black male on campus. And I'm 6'3", athletically built, a beard, bald head. It's easy yeah. for you to identify who I am. And although I'm saying that jokingly, my goal and my objective was to bring that to the forefront to recognize, again, we have a diverse population but we don't have anyone that looks like these particular students to help them get to the next level of their academic journey. And one of the things I hold myself accountable for, specifically as we're in this social unrest of this country, my colleagues will say, hey, Dr. Waters, we need you back in urban ed. I said, I get that. I understand that. However, the individuals that I am educating will be the next legislators, will be the next FBI agents, will be the next state troopers. and just that moment, because the narrative that they're accustomed to has changed because now they're able to see me and interact with me. And that's my role. And that's my objective and where I'm at now. Oh, right. I'll stop after I tell you this one story, my first couple of weeks there. No, don't stop. I mean, <laughs> what you're saying is so important. Like if we all just stay in our enclaves mm-hmm. and we st- and we feed into a segregated system and play our parts like we're expected to. We cannot affect change. Yes. And people who think that they don't have to be part of the solution, we all have to. Correct. And that's where I'm at. So I'll tell you a quick story. This one young lady was in my class. So I teach a social justice class in an English course. And she came to me in tears maybe two weeks within a course. And she said, Dr. Wars, I didn't know. And she's in tears. Prototypical white young ladies, 11th grade, the prototypical stereotypical white girl, for lack of better words. And she came to me in tears and said, I did not know. And I said, what do you mean? She said, I did not know this is what a black man looks like and how he acts. And at that moment, I realized this is where I'm supposed to be. Because she has personally known a black man. Yes. Yeah. Oh my and for the simple fact that she felt comfortable to even come to me just also shows you the growth and why I believe that's where I'm called to be at this particular moment. Economics are inextricably tied to equity. The average white family in America has a net worth 10 times higher than the average black family. Bridging that gap is not only about education, it's about financial education. Children begin to develop their spending and saving habits by the age of five. It's never too soon to teach financial literacy. This is Lauren Jenkins, the CEO and original graduate of Mini Money Management. We are extremely excited to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast. At MMM, we believe that every single student should leave school with a quality financial education. We provide teachers with a quality classroom management tool that integrates financial literacy into everyday learning. Find Mini Money Management at edcuration.com. 
That's E-D-C-U-R-A-T-I-O-N.com. And take advantage of their free pilot today. Your students deserve it, and so do you. Now back to our interview. You ended your conference session by asking participants to fill out a pledge mm-hmm. of what something that they would begin doing to change their practice and something that they would stop doing to yes. change their practice in order to promote the success of Black male students. And you didn't have time at the end of your session to unpack that. And I don't know what kinds of things people wrote on their pledges. So I'm curious if you had a list of recommendations for what are those things that we need to be aware of and stop doing in our classrooms, schools, and districts, Mm -hmm. what are those things that we need to start doing in our classrooms, schools, and districts? Yes. So my approach to whenever I conduct a professional development, it's more reflective in nature. What I mean by that, I can say, hey, you should not do this. You should do this. However, you may do it for a time being, but if it's not natural, if it's not organic to you, you're not going to actually continue along this particular path. So out of that, and what I'm hoping and the expectation is that individuals can identify what are they doing to hinder their progress with a marginalized groups? It doesn't necessarily be black males, but specifically because we were talking black males, I talked about that. So my list, if I could give you one, and one of the strategies I employ, the first one is check your bias at the door. Check your bias at the door is my first thing. My second thing is to ensure that your expectations are high for this particular learner, right? Okay. Not only are your expectations high academically, your expectations are also high socially, your expectations are high for them professionally, and your expectations are high for them personally. So beyond just academics, you just have a different feeling, not necessarily different, but you have a certain level of regard for what they're capable of accomplishing in life. And that is basically, that basically materializes in all your actions towards them, right? Another thing is also to listen. Listen Mm -hmm. and be transparent. Listen, I don't understand your community. I don't understand this music. I don't understand why you do this. Enlighten me, right? One other thing I I ask teachers during my professional development is that who is or who are the leaders of your class? And most of them will say, I'm the leader. And I said, that's where we have a challenge at, right? I believe that the students are the leaders and your job is to facilitate them to help them because your class can be so much easier, so much more fruitful if you allow your students to gather and understand their voice and their power within inside your classroom. And they will self-regulate if anyone steps out of line. Your job is to empower them, to give them the voice, to allow them to be the best version of themselves in a safe environment, not only academically, but also physically and emotionally. Right. So all that to say, I bring it back to you. Expectations are high. You're able to listen. You're able to remove your bias as soon as you walk into the classroom. And not only that, you're allowing yourself to be vulnerable and transparent about what you do and do not know in that classroom. Okay. And then what do we need to be aware of in ourselves that we, not that we're necessarily doing wrong, but maybe that we're doing wrong. What's your list of things we should stop doing? Stop making excuses. If you if you if you mess up, hey, I'm sorry, I messed up. I apologize if I messed up and I offended you. 
being in a position that you feel comfortable exposing some of your inadequacies. Yeah. Because individuals can see straight through that, right? And if you say something wrong, and I have teachers who come to me, I think I did something wrong in regards to this particular student. And I asked them, okay, what was the intent? What was your intent in communicating or doing X, Y, and Z? And then I say, how hard is it just to go say, this is the way I perceived and this is the way I took things. However, I believe that maybe you could have perceived it differently. So being transparent, it's a shared opportunity in that classroom. I actually feel emotion welling up in me as you're saying that, because I feel like, especially for us white educators, that feels so comforting to have somebody say, you know what, just be honest, just be transparent, just admit what you don't know, just make it a shared journey, feels not that we're off the hook, but like, there is no right or wrong answer, right? We're all stumbling through this together. Let's just be ourselves. Yeah. And do not be scared to fail. You know, no one is perfect. We're going to mess this up. But if you create the atmosphere where the students feel safe physically and emotionally, which is important, everything else will start playing playing itself out. So what, because you're the director of equity and inclusion and diversity, and what practices and programs has your school beyond hiring you into this role? <laughs> what, what practices and programs have they put into place or what have you put into place to ensure equity and address racial bias? We've created space, safe space to have these conversations. And one of the things that I focus on is I focus more on cultural differences. And I help individuals recognize that we are more similar than we are different. But because we we are trained to look at more external factors, like our skin color, like our hair, our height, et cetera. But if we look at some of the, the core of who we are, I theorize that we have more in common. But we can't get past and we can't work in unison until we start learning, having conversations that are real and organic and so forth. My focus is not to tell you what to do, it's to bring awareness and to help you recognize how this can be perceived from a different vantage point. It's that old saying of perception versus reality. One person may be looking at this as a six, another person may be looking at this as not, right? So what I try to do is bring awareness around racism, uh, around sexism, around different cultures, around all these different things that happen that could possibly happen, pretty much all the isms. So this really bridges into curriculum. And obviously at Ed Curation, we're a curriculum and resource marketplace. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious because you can't just have great practices. You've got to have great content. How do you make choices and selections around curriculum resources and content in your subject areas to make sure that those are also going to fall in line with your your guidelines for equity and Mm -hmm. inclusion? So that's where we're at now. This year, we are more intentional about ensuring that each department has some type of diverse, equitable, and inclusive statement. And then that the materials that individuals are learning has diversity included in these particular classes. So it's an ongoing process, but I am happy to say that this year, I don't want to say required because it sounds more like a dictatorship, but we've Mm -hmm. asked every faculty member to specifically put on their page their diversity, equity, inclusion mission and statement from their own personal vantage point 
we try to create metrics that allow us to measure our success. And one of the ways that we do this is that how collegial are our students despite their beliefs and whether they're a Democrat, Republican, independent, these are simple things that we kind of do within a school. How do they respond to the LGBT community? So we raise awareness around the LGBT community. What does it mean to be an ally? We just came out at the beginning of the school year, National Hispanic Heritage Month for Latinx Month. So again, we're raising awareness amongst diversity. And also part of my job is to help with hiring individuals that have different physical disabilities as well. So it's not just necessarily race, but I always try to look at bringing different thoughts and thinking in the actual process as opposed to creating more homogeneous environments. Yeah, great. Thank you. You kind of shared an anecdote of one of your own students uh-huh. and how she had a cathartic moment or a moment of awakening just by the fact that you were there being her teacher and getting to know her and creating a relationship with her. Can you share a story of how you have seen a shift maybe for a particular student or for the student body as a whole as a result of your school adopting these best practices? Well, I will say, and I, I'm going to acknowledge my bias immediately, okay. that prior to me arriving and my role in doing the things that I do, the buzz was that no one said anything. No one mm-hmm. had the conversation. Everyone was kind of in their own silos and everyone operated behind the scenes and and more from a microaggression standpoint. And what I've seen in the past two years, the school has adopted a civic engagement policy that we practice and that we communicate on a consistent basis whenever something arises that that can deal with diversity, equity, inclusion. I will say that we're more open to having conversations around the different isms and that's happening around the world. Obviously, we're just coming out of the election and we had opportunities for students, faculty to come together and discuss how they're feeling about the natural election. Because the reality is that we're not in a school that's 100 percent conservative and a school that's 100 percent liberal. It's a mixture of everyone. I want to say it's probably half and half. And just the opportunity for us to have a conversation now, whereas what I heard before, there was no conversation had. Everyone went into their own spaces. And now it's okay to feel safe being a Republican or being a Democrat. It's okay to feel and recognize where you fit at this particular school. I will say that the school is more open to having the conversation overtly as opposed to covertly. Oh my gosh. Isn't that just a microcosm of what we are wanting to move toward in our country? Yes. That is so moving because as you're describing it, it's just exactly where we're hoping that we as adults in this country can move to. Yes. So I'm a teacher and I'm listening and I'm thinking my school and my district does not have these same initiatives happening, but surely there's something that I can do right now Mm. in my classroom. Yeah. What is it? What is like a one thing? If you do nothing else, just do this. So I recognize, okay, like I said, I've been in public schools. I've been in charter schools. I've been in colleges and I've been at private schools, right? And one of the things that I understand from a public school, you are basically 
held hostage per se based on the policies and the things that you have to accomplish from a statewide standpoint. However, your class is your domain. You can control the safe environment or you could go in there and just create the same hostile environment that these students are coming from. And as a result, you're basically losing not only your mind, but you're losing the opportunity to curtail the current systematic systems that we are that are known to be oppressive in today's society for specifically black males, marginalized groups and, and so forth. So if your district or school is not having these conversations, have them in your classroom because yeah. that's where you're the king. I know that this is going to be so valuable for our listeners. Can our listeners find you somewhere? KD Waters is my handle on Twitter as well as on LinkedIn. I am available. I try to respond to everyone that emails me. Thank you so much, Dr. Waters. We really appreciate you. you coming on the podcast and we appreciate the amazing good work that you're doing in the world. Keep it up. Bless. Humble. Appreciate it. Are you, like Dr. Waters, looking for ways to empower young men of color while simultaneously making your classroom run smoother and embedding real-world skills? Then implement a classroom economy. You'll be reinforcing positive choices and behaviors and equipping all of your students with financial literacy. Allison, a fifth-grade teacher, said, Many Money Management is such a valuable classroom management tool. At the touch of a finger, I'm able to embed financial literacy standards in our daily classroom routine and provide lifelong skills for my students. There's really no reason not to take advantage of their free pilot. Connect to Mini Money Management and other great instructional resources at edcuration.com. And while you're there, check out the many professional learning opportunities for educators, including our webinars, our recently released Exploration Micro-Professional Learning Courses, and our blog. Reach out to us if you have a topic or resource you'd like to share with our podcast audience. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll find episode notes and resources on Podbean. Please like, follow, and share, and leave us a comment. We love to hear from you. Tune in again next week to the Ed Curation Podcast, where we reshape learning.